Welcome to Forest City Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you find today's message encouraging on your journey of figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the 21st century. Good morning, church. We're going to read the Bible in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4 to 16. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4 to 16. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors say to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. That's the word of the Lord. The fall of 2022, six weeks after we launched this community for a city, Amy and I went off to Kelowna to attend a conference. And this was a much-needed escape for us because it took almost everything out of us to launch this community and pull it off. And so we got a babysitter, left the kids, and took the nice, quiet drive out to Kelowna. It was a beautiful fall day. The sun was just right. Great conversation. When we arrived in Kelowna, I found this beautiful coffee shop. Amy had the best coffee she said she's had in years, and the sun was just shining right through. We go, we check into our hotel. I put on a nice shirt. We go have a nice meal. We get there a whole day before the conference actually starts. 
And after having a nice meal at a place that we just really enjoyed and great conversation, I just remember, it's picturesque. We're just pulling out of the parking lot, driving down the road. And Amy in the passenger seat looks over to me, and in that moment, she expresses her love. Except it wasn't for me. It was for ice cream. (laughs) Amy loves ice cream. And she wanted to remind me that although her meal portion of her stomach was full, she has this other portion of her stomach that's designated for ice cream, and that was desperately empty. And Amy loves ice cream, but not just any ice cream. She likes a blizzard from Dairy Queen. You know, the small $12 ones that you buy? (laughs) Those knockoffs from those McFlurries from McDonald's, they will not do. They do not compare it to the Dairy Queen blizzard. So at 8.30 at night in Kelowna, we find a local Dairy Queen near our hotel, and we pull into the parking lot. I didn't plan for this trip, so I think let's just go through drive-thru, get the lady her ice cream, and then we can be on her way. But there were several cars in the drive-thru, and we were waiting about five minutes and not, no movement. Cars weren't going anywhere. So I was like, maybe the guy in front of us is ordering 50 blizzards, and so we got to go inside. So I put the car in reverse, park it. I jump into the restaurant with Amy. That was a fatal decision. The lineup was almost out the door, and that's moving just as slower and slower than the drive-thru lineup. So we're in line for, I think, uh, you know, half an hour to spend $40 for two blizzards uh, at date period. And while we're in line waiting forever, I notice the place is cold. I don't know if their heating got cut off. It's dirty. There's like, there's garbage everywhere. It doesn't seem clean. There's only like two or three staff working and it's just taking forever. Eventually we get our blizzards and we sit down for some reason, I don't know why, in this establishment. And in that moment, I would do, I was thinking that I should do what every citizen does today, pull up my phone and write a terrible review about this place on Google. (laughs) But as I was sitting there, I noticed that the manager of this store was literally running from the cashier at the restaurant to the cashier of the drive-thru, running back and forth, trying to get orders and just keeping everything going. He's only got two or three other staff supporting him. I noticed on the wall everywhere that there's these signs for job postings. This was right after the pandemic, and so jobs like this were struggling to find people to work. I don't know if you remember this season. And then someone in line asked him, the manager, how's the campaign going? Which is all Amy and I needed to look on our phones and do a little Google research to figure out what campaign they were talking about. See, Kelowna at this time was going for a local election, and there was a bunch of signs everywhere for... Um, serving on council or mayor. And we realized that this manager was serving, who was running for council for Kelowna. And he had his own website with his own bio. And Amy, while I'm eating my blizzard and hers, and she's eating hers, she reads me this bio. And his bio is full of trauma and tragedy. His bio is full of transition homes and abuse and neglect. And almost instantly, In just a moment, my whole opinion about him changed. My whole opinion about the restaurant changed. Just in that moment, I was all of a sudden had so much empathy and understanding. I said, look at him, trying to keep this restaurant going, managing, worked probably himself up the ranks. And now he's even got political aspirations and want leadership, all from nothing was set up for him. And he said everything that was set up to hold them back, but yet he's doing all of this. 
We all have moments like this, don't we? We miss seeing the humanity in others. We, as every high school English class taught us that we shouldn't do, is that we judge books by their covers. The differences between us and society have never been more drastic than perhaps in more recent years. Individuals seem to become more and more alienated with others, and our public discourse has become more vicious than it has before. Many factors for this, but probably most clearly COVID-19 highlighted or created these divisions in our society that we have never seen at a level in recent years. Not to mention our protests, uh, that more recent protests have come uh, forth, like Black Lives Matter and the trucker convoy. All of these protests have created so much tension in society and making us all as individuals having to pick a side. Be that as it may, others suggest that our society is not actually as divided as it appears, that it only has the appearances of division which are accelerated by our social media and our news cycles that only focus on the extremes. They would say for the most part individuals are quite tolerant and overall most of us get along. See the reality is probably both are true to some context, but what is certain is that our social divides are nothing new. In fact, the very story of Jonah, the one we're looking at as a church, demonstrates that seeing people that are different with a negative perspective, well, it's as old as humanity is itself. See, this little story of Jonah uncovers the complexity of this reality. If you're new with us today or you haven't been here for a bit, we just are, we're in week two of a five-week series called Jonah, where we're looking at this short ancient book in the Hebrew Bible following this prophet on the, on the call. He has to go to a place called Nineveh. Last week served sort of as an introduction for that. Um, we looked at the first three verses. Uh, and today we're going to finish up the rest of chapter one here of Jonah. And we're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at it as in look at the storm, uh, this we're going to go kind of verse by verse through the story, kind of pull out some things for us, and then secondly, embracing the other. The storm, embracing the other. So let's look into this. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4. This is what it reads. But before I read that, let's, I just want to catch you up for those of you that may not have been here. Last week, Jonah received the call, go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Many reasons probably for that, but instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to the, po- the furthest possible place he knows called Tarshish. It's hundreds of miles away. He gets on a boat, pays the fare, and he's on his way away from Nineveh. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Of such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo off the ship and lightened the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went down and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. See, the Israelites were not sailors. They were foreign to the seas. And so, ironically, Jonah had to put his trust in a group of non-Israelites. And these would have been experienced sailors. They probably made this uh, trip um, from Joppa to Tarshish many times. And so for them to be afraid of this storm communicates this was a serious storm. The severity of the storm was likely that they were in a storm that they have never seen before. 
And this, was a, this, this group of sailors were probably made up of a diverse ethnic group, which means there was a plurality of religion on this boat. You get that idea from every of them, each one of them saying, you pray to your own God and figure out which God is offended here, and maybe, maybe one of our prayers. Maybe if we just all pray to the different gods, maybe one of the God would oblige us and have mercy on us to slow down this storm. So picture the scene. There is a storm like no other storm these sailors have seen before. The boat is rocking. Waves are coming in. They're literally throwing off all the cargo. They're, they're on their knees begging to the gods that they serve that he would stop the storm. This is a frantic scene, but who's not in it? It's interesting. This is happening, but there's a character that seems quite absent from what's going on. Jonah. Where's Jonah? Well, Jonah is under the deck, sleeping. Through the storm. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for deep sleep is like, it, it, it communicates like almost like this out of conscious sleep, this sort of like an anesthetic sleep that you just would be completely out. He was out. And the captain, for one reason or another, he's down underneath the deck. Maybe he's finding more cargo to get off. Maybe he remembers there was this Hebrew that paid for this fare or whatever. But he finds Jonah sleeping. He calls him to wake up. And his phrase that he says to Jonah is lost on us, but in the original readers in the Hebrew language, it would have been quite significant because the word get up and call, it's the exact same words in verse 2 that God said to Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. The exact same words. So you can picture this. Jonah is like asleep, deep asleep, and he hears get up and call, and he's like, probably like half asleep rubbing his eyes. He's like, God, is that you? No, it's the captain giving him the same command that God did in verse 2. It's almost God saying in a funny way, found you. See, Jonah left to Tarshish, fleeing from God is what the text says. He, think he could run away from God, but the captain through this says, listen, why didn't you get up and pray to your God? So he goes up the boat, and then the sailors get together, and they say, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. This is how you figured out how to do things in the ancient world. If you weren't sure who was going to pay for the meal, you cast lots. If you weren't sure which person you're going to marry, you just cast lots. That's how you figured things out in the ancient world. We do think we're way more sophisticated how we make decisions today. Anyways, they would cast lots in the ancient world, and there was many different ways that they would do that. They would write names on sticks and stuff like that. But one commentary thinks that they used stones. There would be two stones. And on one side of the stones would be black, and on the other side of the stones would be white. And so you'd get the stones and you shake them, and if they both came up black, that means that wasn't the person. That wasn't the person causing the issue. If it came up white and black, it was unsure you need to roll again. If they both came up white, that's the person. So you can imagine the scene. They're on top of this boat. There's a storm around them. They're all huddled together. And they're like, let's cast lots. And they start shaking it. Two black. Okay, it's not you. Shake it. White, black. Unsure. Let's roll again. Two black. And they're going around. Meanwhile, Jonah probably knows. And then first roll for Jonah, two white. Right on him. And so you can see the scene, right? They're, they're, they don't know what's going on. And then they just pepper him with questions. Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They just go on and on and on. 
See, they pepper him with this question because they knew where they come from. There's probably some God he offended. See, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as atheists. Everybody believed in some God. And usually your God was connected to your ethnicity or your tribe that you were part of. And so when they ask, who have you offended or where you're, from, where you're coming from, is like, what God have you, what God have you offended? <laughs> what God is causing all this? And then we reach the pinnacle of the entire chapter right here. We reach the moment that the writing is all working up to. In this moment, it's actually the first time Jonah opens his mouth. And what does he say? I am a Hebrew. Oh, am I God? Except he doesn't use the word God that they use. They use a word called Elohim, which means average God, but he uses the word Yahweh. He's like, my God, Yahweh? Oh, he's the God of heaven and earth. He's the one who's created the sea. And you can read the response of the sailors. They are deeply afraid now. Why? Because they thought this was just some tribal God. They just thought this was some local tribal God that would cause some things. But the way that Jonah's speaking about a God, he's speaking about a cosmic God, a God that created everything, the gods of heaven and earth, the God who created the sea. Well, no God could control the sea. In the ancient world, the sea was seen as chaos, and so for their God to create the sea, this would be like a God that they've never experienced or known of before. So they were afraid once again, but they were now not afraid of the storm. They were afraid of the God who was causing the storm. Sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked, what should we do? How should we respond? How can, how can we fix this? And at this point, Jonah then offers himself as a sacrifice. It's my fault, he says. Throw me overboard. Now, we're not really sure why Jonah in this moment seems to be a hero when he hasn't been at any point of this story. Maybe because he's just so depressed and so discouraged by this whole thing, he just wants it all to be over and just sees his, his way out here by just jumping overboard. But again, these sailors were unsure of this option. This was a prophet of the God that creates all of the heaven and earth, so they got to be sure that they got this right here. So they, they, they get their oars and they try to paddle back to shore, but with no avail, they can't make it. And so they ultimately decide, let's just throw them over or we're all going to die. Throw them over and almost instantly, it's calm. The storm leaves. This was actually such a meaningful experience for the sailors that the text even says that in that moment, they made vows to Yahweh, to this God, they, made, they worshipped him. It changed their life in such a way. They had such an encounter that they actually worshipped the God of Jonah in that moment. Do you see the great irony in this story? See, the writer is trying to make it clear to you and I with this irony of the contrasting the righteous Hebrew prophet the one who receives the word of the Lord and does the Lord's bidding, the righteous Hebrew prophet and the pagan sailors. Now, the word pagan is not a derogatory term. It's how you would call someone who was a non-Israelite or a non-Christian in the ancient world. But the writer is making this, showing you the contrast between the two. When the boat is in chaos, who's sleeping? Jonah. Who's indifferent to the common good? Jonah. See, the captain appeals to him to care about the outcome of everyone on the boat. 
See, the Israelites were commanded to be the blessing to the nation, but, who's, but it's the outsider, the captain, the pagan captain, who had to remind Jonah of this calling. The contrast continues. Who should be the one praying to God? Well, the prophet should be the one praying to God, but he's fast asleep, and then the sailors are praying to the various different gods. Jonah was so uninterested in the Ninevites that he gets on a boat and he flees to go the opposite direction. But the sailors, even after they find out Jonah is the source of their problems, the sailors are so interested in humanity that they even try to row back to shore to save this person's life. So much of this stark contrast between Jonah and the sailors is missed on us in the English language, but in the original Hebrew language, it comes through so clearly. In verse 7, when it says, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. That word calamity is, means evil. Let's find out who's causing this evil. It's the same word that God uses to describe the Ninevites in verse 2, their wickedness. Exact same word. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were so wicked, but who is wicked in this story? Who is the evil one? Who is the one that's causing the calamity with the sailors? The irony comes up more and over again. The unrighteous pagans are acting more righteous than the righteous Hebrew prophet. That's a mouthful, but hopefully you can see the contrast between the two. The unrighteous pagans, they're the ones acting in the way that Jonah should be acting. And the writer is showing you this to communicate the irony. Showing how Jonah despised those who were different from him. Showing you how he was indifferent to their suffering, that he was full of his self-righteousness. He felt that he didn't need to concern himself with those who were outside of his tribe. This becomes most apparent when we first hear Jonah speak. After verses of hearing about him going here and there, he, he first opens his mouth. The first words, the first lips, the first words out of his lips from his mouth, what does he say? I'm a Hebrew. Oh, yeah, my God's Yahweh. Commentators would say that Jonah identifies more with his, his, his tribe and his ethnicity and his nationality than more than the God that he serves. Jonah was more proud of his nationality than he was of the God he served. Now, this point of Jonah, in my experience, is not often stressed when we read the story of Jonah when we hear stories of Jonah, people would bring to the surface about obedience and how we should be obedient to the call that God has to us, even if it's the cities or places or things that we don't want to do. And others would say, listen, how storms of life, they clarify things. In the storms of life, things become more clear than they do in the regular parts of life. And all those things are true. But I believe the strong undercurrent of the entire story, in fact, the entire book of Jonah, it shows us in powerful force that God's great concern is for all humanity. And the prophet of Jonah is a great example of the irony in it. Timothy Keller says it this way. God shows Jonah here that he is the God of all people. And Jonah needs to see himself as being part of the whole community, not only a member of a faith community. It's the big idea, I think, of the entire book. But I think the writer here is trying to show us in great irony 
the difference between them. And I think the main idea from it is what I would summarize is embracing the other. Embracing the other. How do we view those that are different from us? Who speak a different language? Who have a different worldview? That look different from us? Who vote differently than us? Who have a different religion? They parent different. Their lives just look different than us. See, many psychologists would describe what Jonah's doing as, quote, othering. It can be defined this way. Othering is to view the other, to view someone as the other, is to focus on the way they are different from oneself. It's to reduce them to some characteristics until you dehumanize them. And we all, at different moments, find ourselves seeing people as the other. It can be as simple as when someone is late for something. I don't know about you, but when someone's late for a meeting or something, I can find myself quickly judging that person and starting to create a narrative of them. I can say, of course they're late. They're irresponsible. Of course they're late. They don't manage their time well. They are not prioritizing this meeting. They don't prioritize our relationship. But when I'm late, well, when I'm late, you know, it's because I have many justified factors for why I'm late. I'm trying to balance all these different realities. I've got these pieces going on. I've got this, you know, it's like because of my family of origin and some of this stuff here. And, uh, you know, and I want to be present for people. And sometimes emergencies happen, so I just can't always get to the next thing at times. See, we often see others as simple and ourselves as complex. You notice that? We often see others as simple. That's just them being late, it's simple. They vote a certain way, that's just because it's simple. They, they believe a certain thing or live a certain way. We, we often see why they do things as a, a list of characteristics. It's simple, we understand it, but we see ourselves as complex. We understand the complexity of ourselves, but often miss it in those around us. Like the DQ manager, we want to look at people as simple and miss their complexity, but we yet appreciate our own. Othering. To view people as the other is just to simply see them as a list of characteristics and ultimately dehumanize them. So when you and I hear the story of Jonah, we want to distance ourselves from him. We think we are nothing like him. However, this little narrative illuminates something that seems to be more true for many of us than we would like to admit. And sadly, this is often can sometimes be the reality of church as well. See, the reality is, if you listen carefully to places like this and conversations with followers of Jesus, especially as of late, at times you would hear othering type of language. It was about a year ago, I, um, I pulled up in front of my house after a long day of work, and I was helping uh, my son and his 95 uh, craft projects that he happened to do only in one day uh, take out of the van. And this person on the sidewalk came walking up to me, and she started the conversation with, you're a pastor, which then I look over to my neighbor and say, thanks for giving away my cover. 
And then that's all she needed me to say was yes. And then she began to tell me about a protest that she was a part of. And she began to go on. And I would like to say it was a conversation, but it was more of this kind of like speech that she had about what the problems with the world were and how we were going to fix them. And in the back of my head, in that moment, there was a voice that was saying to me, Jordan, just say, God bless you, and go home. Jordan, just say, God bless you, and go home. But I just, I just couldn't. <laughs> and I probably should have. But she started talking about us and them. She started talking, like, with this language that sounded actually quite hateful. She started talking in these simple terms and these, these attributes of the other people. And then I just started to ask questions. Oh, have you talked to someone that thinks that way? Oh, it might be a little bit more complex than that. Oh, I don't know if that's been my experience. And meanwhile, she's talking, and she thinks I'm a, I'm, I'm a yes and amen. She was th looking for yes and amens, and all I'm doing is asking lots of questions. But she carried on with the, why this politician is the problem and, and why, we, we, listen, we got to go to war. We, we have to defend these things. we got to make a case. we gotta, we got to stand up for this stuff. And I just kept asking questions and maybe challenging some assumptions and maybe saying, ah, oh, there might be more there. And eventually she's like, God bless you. Have a good day. Much of this kind of language is what I would describe as tribal, about building a tribe. But rather, I think our call as followers of Jesus is to be about community building. David Brooks helps us untangle the difference between the two. This is what he says, quote, Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. It certainly does bind people together, but it is actually the dark twin of community. Community is a connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism is a connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity, tribalism on a common foe. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources, and it's us versus them. Zero sum. I am worried. I'm worried about the increase of tribal language in Christian contexts. I'm worried about the rhetoric of us versus them. And honestly, when I read this description of tribal thinking, I was challenged by how much of their, that thinking can sometimes be the thinking of the church. And that often we can become more tribal than community building. We can be more known for what we're against and what we're for. We can be more known of the people that are just grabbing for scarce resources because society and culture is changing and we got to make a fight. we gotta, we got to see these people and make our case. Now, some of you might be listening to me and you, you would want to push back, and rightfully so. You would say, well, doesn't the Bible have war language in it, Jordan? The, the New Testament seems to talk a lot about this. Paul, in fact, called us soldiers. Yes, the Bible does have war-like language. It we, talks about a spiritual war that's happening and that we should not be passive with that reality. 
But that spiritual war is a war of ideologies. Where our, our fight is not with flesh and blood, it says, but with, against ideologies that corrupt and that lie and that want to veer people onto what not God's goodness is. And in my experience, we sometimes have a hard time separating the ideology from the person. Some of you would say, well, Jordan, should we not hold for the truth? Like, we shouldn't compromise our values. We should speak for the biblical truths. We should be a light in these places. We should speak for what God calls us to speak to. And And I agree as well. In fact, in this space, in many spaces, we're constantly trying to untangle the lies that the enemy has crept in and rooted in society and culture and people's hearts. And we try to separate those things and speak to the truth of what God calls us too, and it's less about the topic or the issues, it's the mentality and the approach that we have with it. And sometimes I wonder, I, I just wonder if our standing for truth is actually a thin veil for our self-righteousness and our indifference to the peril of those around us. What does the greater community of Metro Vancouver say about the church? Would they say that we're more concerned about the well-being of the city or are we more concerned about our own agenda? That was the captain's plea to Jonah. That Jonah was more concerned about his own tribe and he wasn't concerned about the rest of the people and the rest of the sailors on the boat. And he was saying, we're all in the same boat here, Jonah. So how are we to treat those that we consider the other? Well, Jonah shows us not what to do. But centuries later, another prophet would face a storm with a group of sailors. And this prophet would speak with such authority, just like the Yahweh in this story, that he would speak and the storm would calm. But this prophet would face the storm of all storms. He would face a storm of cosmic, of scope, and he would face a storm like Jonah. He would sacrifice himself. But not just for the well-being of those who run the boat, but for the well-being of all humanity as a whole. See, Jesus' life and sacrifice is the demonstration for us of how we are to engage with people. See, Jesus went all the way to the cross, and the people he went to the cross with even the people who put him on the cross, the people who hated and persecuted him. A couple weeks ago, um, it was the American Super Bowl. Uh, which typically most of you probably wouldn't know that the Super Bowl was going on, but because Taylor Swift was dating one of the star players on the team, we all knew the Super Bowl was happening. So this game is, uh, I don't even know what the records are for this last uh, game, but they probably broke records, just like everything Taylor does these days. But anyways, this game, even before that, was one of the most watched sporting events in North America and just even the world. And therefore, commercial space on the Super Bowl is a premium. Uh, This last year, the growing rate was $7 million for 30 seconds. $7 million for 30-second slot. So it makes it the most expensive commercial slot in live TV. And because we are Canadians, our lame cable providers give us lame Canadian commercials that we have to watch during the Super Bowl. However, you can go online and find and watch the Super Bowls. They have become iconic. Super Bowl commercials have become iconic because these um, advertisers are spending millions of dollars. So they they got to put their best foot forward. Like, do we even watch live TV anymore? Super Bowl, we do. So I went online and I looked at a, an article of some of the best 
um, commercials from this past Super Bowl, and then it talked about one of the most controversial uh, commercials. It was actually a commercial about Jesus. I don't know if you've seen it, but the, it, the commercial was a, a, um, several different AI-generated images of people washing other people's feet. But there was a twist. All of the people that were washing feet were people of ideological differences. So you had a police officer washing the feet of a young African-American male. You had an oil worker washing the feet of an environmentalist protester. You had a protester at a family planning center washing the feet of a patient there, and so forth and so on. 30 seconds of these images coming up. And then at the end, it says, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. The reviews for this commercial were bad. Um, conservatives didn't like it. They called it woke Jesus and that it was affirming sin. Uh, and no surprise, the liberals didn't like it either. They hated it because one of the financial backers of the commercial held a conservative view of marriage, and therefore this commercial in some way, I'm not sure how, but it perpetuated hate. Which in that moment, I, I felt like I probably, that it probably actually depicted Jesus quite accurately then. Because Jesus is always too conservative for the liberals, and he's always too liberal for the conservatives. That is time, and even today. See, Jesus broke socioeconomic barriers. He broke ethnic barriers. He broke gender barriers. Didn't, Jesus didn't just create a holy huddle of people that look like him and sound like them, but he called people, his followers, to see those around him as their neighbor, and therefore to show love and compassion to them. This is what the whole idea of the Good Samaritan is about. The Good Samaritan is not to just give your, your neighbor that's right next to you that looks like you and sounds like you and thinks like you just to give them a cup of sugar when they're in need. That's not what a Good Samaritan means. To be a Good Samaritan is to help somebody in need, to help those that you have been taught to despise your entire life. See, the ancient world, no Jew would put Good and Samaritan together. Those things did not go together. Jesus uses it to demonstrate what kind of people we should be. We should care about the Ninevites. We should care about the sailors. We should care about people who ideologically think differently, sound differently, believe different things from us. So how do we view those who are different from us? I'm inviting the keys to come back and I'm closing with this. How do we view those that differ from us ideologically, culturally, who have different language, custom, looks, religion, sexual orientation? How do we view them? I want to close with a story. Um, Elizabeth, who's part of our community, um, from one way or another, she moved here from Cameroon. She had quite a story of how she got to Canada. And when she arrived, she felt like she was supposed to be on mission here. God brought her to Canada, not just to work and just to like, create a better life for her kids, but she felt like she was on a mission. There was something she was supposed to do. And she noticed that there was um, these groups of people that were houseless. They didn't have anywhere to live. And she noticed that no one was, seemed to be really that concerned about it. And so she felt, well, that should be my mission. Here are people in need. Let me go help them. And so this was her whole strategy. She would show up and she'd introduce herself. Say, hi, my name's Elizabeth. What's your name? They'd tell her her name or their name. And then she says, I just want to be your friend. 
And she'd talk with them for hours and would connect with them and help them out in different ways she could and just would simply just be their friend. But then she told me something that I thought was really interesting. She's like, you know, Jordan, every time I see them, I go up to them and I just give them the biggest hug. And, if, and not just like a nice hug, like, like squeeze hug, right? She's like, sometimes I hold my breath because these individuals, sometimes they're wearing the same clothes for days, not weeks. Sometimes they smell really bad. Sometimes they smell like alcohol, urine, barf, maybe all three. But she goes up and every time and she embraces them and she gives them a hug. I don't know the last time someone's hugged them. I don't know the last time someone says, hey, I'm here for you. We believe we're going to help you, virtual signaling. But she just gets through all that and she just gives them a hug. She tells them her name and she's like, I just want to be your friend. I think that's what it looks like. Maybe just a small picture of what it looks like to embrace the other. The individuals that we can create assumptions about, that we have these lists of attributes that we think we know who they are, and then ultimately we dehumanize them. We miss their humanity. We miss that they are image bearers of the holy God. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And as you do, the prayer team is coming. The worship team is coming. And as you stand, I, just, I would love to pray with you before we just conclude our service with song. Jesus, I'm thankful for this space. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters in this room. So many of them embody this and live this. And Father, as we look at this ancient story of Jonah, may this just not be a story, would just just not be some cute story that has some great literary pieces in it, but may this story be the very living words of God. And may we believe as followers of Jesus that these words are for us today, that the story of Jonah and Jonah's life wants to tell us something about our own reality today. So Jesus, may we become people who experience your love and then become a conduit of that love. May this space, Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts. May you overfill our cup. May we experience your love upon love upon love. And because of that, Lord, may we do the hard work of embracing those that we differ with, embracing those we can't understand, embracing those that maybe it's hard even to love. May we be the type of community. May we be type of people that we embody Jesus, that we wash feet, that we love those that maybe we would consider to be the other. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us today? Would you give us what we need? In your beautiful name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more resources, messages, or signing up for our current events, you can find everything on our website at forcechurch.ca.